Fred, what did you get up to this weekend? Oh, Dane, I went skiing. I rode my bike. I even got a swim in. That's right. I was in a Speedo. Wow. That's a really active weekend. Well, for active people like me, our good friends at Health IQ have an incredible deal on a way to get life insurance. Health IQ, as you have probably heard by now, is the life insurance company that works with healthy, active people like us, skiers, cyclists, runners, even swimmers and speedos. And what you do is go to healthiq.com slash velonews and you can get a free quote on life insurance. You can even upload your race results, your Strava history. I don't know if you can upload photos of yourself in a speedo though. That's coming maybe, hopefully. Hopefully, Health IQ. Yeah, Health IQ, get get on it. Let's get some speedo pics going on there. But yeah, go there, get a great quote on life insurance and keep listening to the show. Okay, let's get on to the show. All right, it's the Velo News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer, here with Dane Cash. Dane, yay, he's an official member of the team now. You are in Boulder, Colorado, full-time, correct? First time in the, in the actual studio here. It's pretty crazy. Yes, that's right. Dane and I... Uh, we are in the bowels of the Velo News World Headquarters. Um, I don't know if the listeners know this or not, but Velo News is growing like crazy right now. We're hiring all these people, not just for Velo News, but our, po- our uh, parent company, Pocket Outdoor Media. In fact, we have some positions open on the website. I suggest everyone check that out. But because the company is growing so quickly, we've been booted from our old podcast home, which was the Velo News conference room. And we are now in an actual podcast studio. Dane, how would you describe our setting right now? Uh, it gets the job done, I think. Yep. It's a little austere, but I think it gets the job done. Hopefully the sound quality is good. And that's really all that matters, right? We have some wonderful modern art on the walls, which were the background for the 2017 uh, Velo News Buyer's Guide. Yeah, well, as long as they dim the sound, I think you know. Does, I don't think the listeners are going to care what they look like, as long as it sounds good, right? Listeners, if it sounds bad, just write Dane or tweet at him. Um, I don't want to hear about it. Uh, we are joined digitally this week uh, by Andrew Hood, Andy Hood, coming to us from the uh, Velo News Spanish Correspondence Office in Spain, a.k.a. your rumpus room. Andy, how are you doing this week? I'm in the uh, Euro Hoodie Man Cave. Uh you know, coming off the the wine and the tapas, another midweek, uh, tough week here in Spain. Between races, kind of, you know, really kind of loading up before I head down to the Spring Classics uh, in a week or so. I know. We're so excited about this. You guys, Andy and Dane, will be heading to Belgium in just a matter of weeks to go cover the Spring Classics. And guys, I, I just... You know, I was there last year. I'm going to be, I'm a little jealous. Kind of wish I was going this year. We'll have to send you some Instagrams of beer and uh, cyclists and all that stuff just to make you jealous, extra jealous. Yeah. We, had some we can send you, uh, we can send you a jar of the, of the uh, Flemish airs and just get that sense of that you're really there. <laughs> Air and dirt. Yeah. We had some great recordings of the podcast last year along the riverfront there in Ghent, uh, myself and Hoodie drinking a nice frosty beverage and opining opining about bike races. So I expect similar recording settings this year for the podcast. Doesn't sound too hard to do, actually. I kind of like that idea. So guys, let's get into it. We have so much to talk about this week. We had an exciting weekend of bike racing go on in Italy. 
with Strada Bianca, both the men's and women's races. We have week-long stage races happening as we speak with Paranese and Tirreno Adriatico both going on. We're going to talk about these races, which one holds the championship belt in terms of most interesting race at the moment. I think that may have uh, traded in recent years. And then we need to talk about this report, the British report on Team Sky, David Brailsford and Bradley Wiggins that was put together by the uh, the Committee of Digital Culture, Media and Sport, uh, a very damning report that says the British government now believes that Team Sky and Wiggins misused TUEs to gain an advantage in 2012. This is not any type of report that comes with a sanction. It's just sort of a rubber stamp for, I think, something that all of us have kind of suspected for a while. But anyway, we're going to talk about the ramifications of the report, dig into it, and uh, yeah, see if it means that that Wigo will have to like do more TV appearances to defend his honor. But guys, let's get to it first. Strada Bianca was this past weekend. It is a race that's been in our lives for the better part of the last decade. The white roads of Tuscany are always on display. They are so wonderful and beautiful. And this year, it was a slop fest because there was snow the week before. There was rain. Um, Dane... What? How would you describe the images that came out of this race? Brown, I think, would be the word that comes to mind first. Uh, Marone, I think, is an Italian. So, uh, yeah, maybe, I don't know what Strada Bianca, Strada, Strada Marone, maybe, what was the prevailing image from this one. But and it made for great racing, so I, I guess I can't complain. Yeah, it was one of those throwback races. I mean, it seemed like something from, like, the 1950s or even earlier of these uh, men and women racing around. Um, on mud and just getting coated in grime and finishing and looking like they were so tired that they're going to fall off their bikes. In fact, Wout van Aert was so tired he fell off his bike. You know, Hoodie, how would you describe the action that led to the uh, eventual win by Tij Benut? B- break it down for us. What went on in this race? Tij rode very intelligently in this race. I think it was probably one of the best tactical displays at least of this season so far, if not uh, really in some of the best classical riding uh, we've seen in a while. He just had the legs and had the mind to make it all happen. I think a few things had gone one way or the other. It uh, wouldn't have worked out for him. But he was in that lead group. He bridged across to the two uh, leading riders of Bardet and uh, Van Aert and then uh, had the legs to drop those guys. And really just an impressive display from a guy who's been hyped, especially within Belgium, because they're so desperate to find the next Tom Bona, the next big star. Uh, he had that big result a few years ago at, at uh, Tour of Flanders. But for him to deliver this victory just encapsulated all that was really great about what we consider the classics. So let's go around the table. Does anyone have any flaming hot opinions to come out of this race? Any hot, hot, hot takes that take so hot that if they touch your ears, they're going to singe them? I, I'm looking at Dane right now. It looks like he's just erupting with a hot take. That's a lot of pressure for me to come out with a hot take. My my take was going to be that Alejandro Valverde is good, but that's like the coldest take that you ever heard. But I have to say, he coming off a, a sickness, he was maybe not going to race at all three days before the race, and then Movistar says, oh, no, he'll, he'll be racing. Shows up, finishes fourth, looks to be on flaming hot form. That, that's the hottest thing I can say about this take. And I think we're going to see plenty more of Valverde this uh, this classic season. So the fact that he's coming back from sickness and still this, this strong is pretty incredible. Um, I'm going to just scorch you with my hot take here uh, right now, which is that I think that the conditions of this race meant that the heavy-duty favorites didn't give a flying F 
about this race once the rubber met the road. So when we came down to the finale, we had Peter Sagan in the main group. He had four teammates. We had Mikko Kwiatkowski there. I believe he had two or three teammates. And yet it was Roman Bardet, a Tour de France contender, who had really nothing to lose, uh, go off the front with Wout van Aert, the cyclocross world champion, also nothing to lose to go off the front with him. And then Tij Benut, a hard man of the classics with no teammates, make the tactical move to bridge up there and win. So when I looked at the way the race played out and saw that there were these big, heavy favorites, these classics men like Sagan and Kwiatkowski, even Greg Van Avermaet, and yet they just weren't really reacting, even though they had teammates. I don't know. That uh, that let me think that maybe these guys took Stratobianca this year and were like, meh, I'm over it. You, sort of, you do sort of wonder about the, the form as well, I think. If you're Peter Sagan, if you're Greg Wanavermatt, look, this is a great race. Everybody likes watching this race. It's it's great to ride into Siena with, with the victory, but they really care about Flanders. I mean, that, that's the big goal here. And these are riders who have won races at this sort of level before, these sort of great races, but not necessarily the biggest five one-day races on the calendar. So if you're Wanavermatt and you, yeah, you're in this situation where it's a cruddy day, the attack goes off the front, and you're maybe at 90% instead of your peak for Flanders, then I think definitely you might say, meh, go ahead. Go ahead, Tish. I'll see you in two weeks. Hoodie, any flaming hot takes to toss to the readers? I, I, should, I feel I agree with your take there, Fred. That's very, uh, very uh, insightful there because I think you're exactly right. I think the riders didn't want to take a chance, didn't want to go too much into the red, didn't want to risk a crash or getting sick or just blowing up. Uh, I think that... Uh, what stood out to me was the, fa- the fact that, as you mentioned before, that uh, Bora and Sagan had company. It wasn't just Sagan trying to bash his head against the wall by himself. He had three teammates. Four Boras finished in the top 15. That bodes very well going into the Northern Classics for the three-time world champion. And what a big change from the past, too, because there it seems like five straight years, maybe, of, of Sagan being the only guy on his team that's even capable of being in the last 40K, really. And now he's got all these teammates and... I think Matt might actually kind of increase the pressure a little bit because you can't really just say that his his team let him down anymore. In the past, you could that was kind of the go to response. Anytime Sagan it didn't really work out for him, he could say, "Well, everybody's against me, and they're all racing against me." And and as a viewer, you could say, "Yeah, and his team isn't very good." So, but now, I mean, he's got the team, so he better deliver. Yeah, I think this race definitely showed us that Sagan has the firepower to dominate, um, to potentially dominate the classics because. You know, he, like you said, Dane, he was always freelancing back in the day. And now he has three, maybe four teammates who can control the pace, who can ride at the front, who can make it into those sort of mid-race moves that forces other teams like BMC or Sky to have to chase. So to see that number of – that that amount of firepower around Saigon in, uh, in uh, Stratobianca and see them not – really like killing themselves to bring back Roman Bardet and Wout van Aert. Yeah, that maybe tipped me off to like, maybe Sagan's not on a great day. Maybe he doesn't want to go that deep. You know, something else to think about is riding for 180K on wet dirt roads where your tire is sinking in like a quarter of an inch. I mean, the amount of power that's required just to like propel your bike forward over that. Maybe it was just one of those leg sapping moments where Sagan's like, okay, we showed we can ride as a cohesive unit. Maybe we pack it in. Job done. So what did we learn about some of these um, 
protagonists in the race. Let's start with Roman Bardet. You know, he's a guy who we think of as uh, excelling on the steep mountain climbs of Europe, as challenging for major stage races like the Tour de France. And here he is in this classic in Italy when there was snow on the ground and it's rain and it's awful, and he's just throwing haymakers. Hoodie, what did we learn about Roman Bardet for 2018? Yeah, we've seen a different Bardet this season. In fact, he's racing this week at Torino, but his first four races this year have been one-day races. He's, he's won one of those and finished uh, second at Strade and then top 10 in the two other races he did in France. And I think we're seeing a little bit of Bardet's uh, classic potential, of course, with a big uh, prize being Liège, Bastogne-Liège which he will be targeting this spring. And I think that we're seeing it. It's a, to me, it's a more ambitious Bardet. It's a Bardet that's becoming more mature, more confident in himself. And I think that really bodes well for not only his spring classics, but really going into the Tour de France. You know, you get these little hints early in the season, like we we're saying before, that maybe Van Evermatt wasn't looking so great in these early races. Bardet has looked great, and that carries over into the rest of the racing calendar. So we'll have to see how he does. Yeah, you mentioned Liège. I mean, this is a rider who's finished in the top 15 the last five Liège-Bastogne Lieges. That's every, every Liège he's ever raced, he's been in the top 15 um, and top 10 in uh, last year's edition. So this is a guy who definitely has been in those those one-day situations before where he's kind of in the mix. And obviously, I think Liège gets a little less, uh, a little less interest, a little, a little less... Uh, Maybe a little less coverage than like Flanders, so people don't really realize that Bardet, he's not just some some schlub. He actually can one day race, he can do the, the harder one. I mean, Liege is super hard. So he's been there before. He hasn't been on the podium in, in, in Liege or anything like that before, but he's certainly proven that that's an interest of his and that's something he can do. So yeah, definitely Tour de France contender, but also I think a guy to watch come come Flesh Wallone, come Liege, and then end of the season, obviously, Lombardia. And I mean, who knows? It's a hilly world. And, one day racer, you never know. I've always worried about Bardet's finishing speed in some of these events because he is such a good climber and he is a, you know, a tough, gritty racer. But a lot of times, you know, he doesn't have the same kick as a Valverde or some of these other racers that are targeting those Ardennes races. But Hoodie, I'm with you. I mean, you know, here he is, the beginning of the season. He's having great results. He's having great results in races that he shouldn't you know, normally be having great results in, and that builds a rider's confidence. And as we look at the rest of the 2018 season, especially heading towards the Tour de France, I mean, we don't know if Chris Froome is going to be at the Tour de France this year. I mean, that's one of the big questions is if if Chris Froome is not able to race the Tour de France, what riders does the door open for? And a guy like Bardet, who's been right there, if he comes in with a head full of steam, having had some great results in some of these races you got to wonder if this ends up being the year for him. Uh, moving on, what did we learn about oh, – we learned a lot. What did we learn about Wolf Van Aert? I mean, here's this guy, you know, just a couple weeks ago, he's racing the Cyclocross World Championships and winning. That's a very hard hour-long effort, all about power and riding through mud, but it's a one-hour effort. And now he's lining up for these races that are like five, six hours and doing well. I mean, at uh, – at uh, last week's race, Omloop had new split. He made the front group, was absorbed in the final, so he, the result didn't really show. But here he is having the legs and the brains to go off the front with Bardet with 40K to go and hold it to the line. What did we learn about Wout van Aert? Yeah, I think we learned that he's serious about the road. It's not just uh, a passing fancy for Wout van Aert. And, and I mean, he's won Chalcel, so we know that he's actually got some talent on the road already. But this is a, this is a race with some climbs. It's not just a long 
you know, it's not just a race that's several times as long as your as your average cyclocross race. It's also a race that has a couple of hills in it. And those hills, they tend to be kind of a challenge for those guys that come over for cyclocross. I mean, Lars Bohm comes over. He's pretty strong, but he's not really climbing particularly well. But Wappenert goes out there and finishes on the podium in a race that, uh, I mean, it ends with a double-digit climb. So definitely strong, strong. Before. Of course, he had a little bit of trouble getting up that climb, which was the, probably the most memed moment, uh, the best gift to come out of uh, Strada Bianca. But yeah, he, he did it. So uh, I think that's, that's a, a big win for him. Uh, Hoodie, you know, here it is, this young Belgian doing well at the classics races, showing potential, a ton of power. Patrick Lefebvre has been looking for the next Tom Bonin. What is this? What, what do we think the road racing potential is for Wolf Van Aert after this race? Yeah, his asking price just shot through the roof after this, this past week or two of racing on the road. I think he's committed to racing cyclocross at least one more season. And then after that, I feel he'll, he'll make that transition to, uh, to road racing. Yeah. I mean, the potential there, it's, it's the sky's the limit, really. I mean, here's a, here's a guy who, has the potential to deliver these huge wins. I mean, he was getting kind of dominated the whole sucker cross season, but boom, he comes out and wins the Worlds for the third time in a row. And then to make this transition to the road, uh, it's it's interesting to see how far he can go in these spring classics on the road. I know he's kind of scheduled to race the Northern Classics. He might even go into the Ardennes. I'm not quite sure about that. But eventually he's going to run out of gas. I mean, he's been running on peak fumes here, you know, from good November, December, all the way through uh, into March. So, Eventually, I think he'll run out of gas, but man, he, he's certainly uh, shown his colors. And I know I know that uh, back in Belgium, I was talking to a colleague of mine there and just massive, massive media media coverage over what he did at Strata. You mentioned that asking price. And uh, the Belgian guys, the really good ones uh, who, are, who are up there in every cross race, they make a, they make a fair chunk of change already. I mean, it, it's sort of maybe a little different from the american cross scene uh i think the belgian guys they're actually pretty pretty happy with their uh compensation for racing cross so with this and the fact he's a world champion the last several times in a row it's going to take a it's going to take a pretty penny i think to sign to sign wildfire to a road deal i think so too i think the deciding factor though is like when you got when these guys start to think about legacy and they start to think about like longevity in the sport. It's like not everyone can be Sven Ness and dominate for, you know, the better part of two decades and earn that type of price and like go down in history at that level. And so, you know, I think of a guy like Zdenek Stibar where, you know, he probably could have stayed racing cross a few more years and racked up a few more world titles or World Cup titles. But, you know, the earning potential and then just the legacy building of you know, potentially winning a Roubaix, potentially winning a Flanders. You know, you it, it would be interesting to try and create a value chart of like what is more valuable to a Belgian cyclist: three world titles or a Flanders win. You know, Flanders plus Roubaix plus uh, two decades. You know, versus two decades of cyclocross domination. Especially when you've already won a couple. Is the fifth world title in cross really that much of a big deal if you can have a pair of Roubaix? Maybe, yeah. Um, well, we definitely hope to see Wout van Aert um, back in a road race with a bank account full of cash from some uh, some team director out there. Um, finally, you know, you talked about him at the top of the show, Tish Benut. He's a guy who has been on our radar screen since he was fifth place at Flanders a few years back. I believe he was like 21 when he did that. And of course, whenever a young, talented cyclist does that well at Flanders, they get the title the next Tom Boonen given to him. 
Um, there's been a lot written in few in recent years about how Benute really hated that title. <laughs> you know, there was kind of an unfair amount of pressure to lump on him. But also, he noted that his racing style and his strengths are so much different than Boonen. I I interviewed him at this past year's Tour de France, where he actually was doing quite well on the climbs, and we've seen this from him in the last few years, which is like shorter stage races and even. Um, Grand Tours, he has the legs and the racing ability to be up there on some of these climbing stages. So, you know, if he's not necessarily a pure cobblestone guy who can do some shorter stage races and climb, like, what do we make of this guy? What what does Tij Benut's career end up looking like? I think he can uh, kind of be, a, uh, just as you described, a rider who can kind of be very versatile. He, he, in fact, I think he's uh, not even scheduled to race at Perry Roubaix this year. In fact, I think he's penciled in to, to race uh, the Ardennes. So that kind of underscores what you're saying is he can climb for a big guy and a Belgian guy. He kind of has that Gilbert capacity to get over these short, punchier climbs. You know, whether he'll be like a Tour de France Grand Tour contender in the future is probably unlikely. But he's a rider who I think can win stages in the Tour, who could win some choice uh classics in the northern classics as well as some other hillary classics in the ardennes and perhaps even other races throughout the season yeah he was uh 12th at the dauphine last year i mean that's a that's a race with a bunch of tour de france contenders and tis benoit 12th and then he yeah he finished 20th overall i think at the tour which obviously it's not something that if you're chris room you're gonna write home about but it takes a lot of climbing chops to be able to just stay up there every day to, to, to grind out that 20th overall result so clearly he's a good climber and he's getting better. He's only 23, so he's getting better and better. He's going to do the Ardennes this year, and I think he's got potential there. Uh, I think the big question is, what do you focus on if you're Tishman? What do you, what do you try to make your big objective? Because there are other riders who I think have that versatility. A guy like Fabio Fellini comes to mind. He's really good in the time trials. He can climb really well. He sort of does this sort of thing where he'll be up there, top 20s in the stage races. Uh, he's got a nice sprint on him, and yet he he doesn't really win ever really. So he's got all this talent, but he doesn't seem to be able to put it out there and actually get the wins. Uh, so that's kind of one end of the spectrum. And then, of course, another guy, maybe Mikhail Kwiatkowski or Alejandro Valverde, for that matter, who guys who are similarly versatile, can do all kinds of different things. So if you're Tishbenot, you obviously want to end up like the Kwiatkowskis of the world, maybe less so like the Fellinis of the world, and uh, maybe direct your talents to something. And he's still so young that I think he's going to keep exploring, figure out what it is he wants to do, and then hopefully he'll be able to... Uh, yeah, channel his talents into actually turn in, turn in some more results. I think the tough part with him too is the critique has the criticism has been that he doesn't have a finishing kick on him. So he's a guy who needs to win from a breakaway. And in this modern age of racing, that's just difficult to do because uh, we just don't see people with that pep in their step anymore uh, to be able to uh, you know put it into the big gear on La Redoute and ride away from the entire field. So a guy like Tish Benut has to wait for a moment when. The peloton is just tired or their motivation is low or it's a really tough day, which, you know, makes Strada Bianca this past weekend like the perfect race for him. I mean, people were – they were just hosed. They were tired. It was awful conditions. And here he is. He can win and launch an attack at the right moment. I think he's on the perfect team too because this, this is a team that has a bunch of guys sort of in a similar situation where they have to attack from 30 or 40K out to just make it happen. And if you have enough of those guys, eventually one of them's going to stick, as we saw. I mean, they got Tim Wellens on this team. He does kind of the same thing. He goes to these home runs, and quite often they don't work out. But the more of these home run hitters you have, 
yeah, the more often you're going to actually have these uh, these victories. So moving on, we have to talk about another home run that happened at uh, Stratabianca on Saturday, and that happened in the women's race, which, first of all, the conditions for the women's race looked really miserable. I mean, it was raining. It was really windy and cold. I, I was watching the rebroadcast, and it just looked like one of those days where you're so happy to be in the confines of your living room and not on a bicycle. Uh, but that did not stop some fireworks from occurring, namely from Anna Vanderbregen, who attacked with 18K to go and soloed in for the win. And, you know, Anna Vanderbregen, we talked a lot about her last year and her domination of the Hilly Classics races, sort of the mid part of the season. She was a little quiet in the early part of the season, but here it is, 2018, first Women's World Tour race of the season. And not only is she winning, but she's dominating. So what does that tell us about Anna Vanderbreg and Bulls Dolmans and their motivations and capabilities for the early part of this season. I think it's just more of this, I mean, more dominance, more of the same, and maybe even more dominant than we've seen. And, and I talked to both uh, Vanderbregen and uh, the, the team manager, Danny Stam, I guess uh, last month here. And Stam was sort of kind of lowering the bar a little bit. He basically said, look, it's going to be really hard to match last year um, because they've just been so good for the last two years. Uh, and, and then they come out and win the first World Tour race and, and pretty commandingly with Von der Breggen. And, and Von der Breggen herself, she's sort of the kind of rider who likes to maybe defer to teammates when asked about her objectives and that sort of thing. And she said something along the lines of, you know, it would be nice to win Strada Bianca. That was like, that was the most direct thing that she said in terms of her objectives early on in the year. And so it was nice, I guess. And she, she seemed to put it together pretty well with a pretty dominant ride there. And, and uh, I think just going into this race, the question was, can anybody stand up to Bowles Domans? And apparently the answer was no. So we'll see how it goes to the rest of the next couple of one-day races because they have so many talented one-day riders here that it's going to be really hard for uh, some of these other teams to to overhaul them. I think a question I have is with Vandenbregen peaking and looking so strong this early in the season, does this lead to some type of mid-season swoon before she wants to build it up towards the end again? You know, last year she... She had an okay ride at Worlds, but I, I remember, I believe in your piece, she talked about, you know, having been so strong in the spring and then the early summer winning the Giro Rosa that by the time the later season rolled around, she was a little bit on the tired side and, and the fitness was beginning to fade. So I do wonder if being this strong this early perhaps has some uh, strategic element in it, you know, geared at world championships. Yeah, that's certainly a fine point. For me, the, the question is, is is anybody even close to her to be able to take advantage of that? Because she's just so much better than some other uh, of her rivals right now that even like at 80%, she might be able to win these races. And even if she's in that that kind of coming off the peak, I think she could still win these races because she's just that strong right now and, and also has that, that strong team. Well, I think it depends on the tactics because I think our American compatriot, Corin Rivera, definitely is strong enough to take her down, especially when we get to some of these races that finish in a sprint. Um, well, Strata Bianca, both men's and women's, exciting races, great way to spend your Saturday watching bike racing and not um, going out and being an active human being. Who needs that? Um, guys, let's move ahead. The next thing on our docket is we need to talk about this. I wouldn't call it necessarily a bombshell report, but this report issued... Sunday night at midnight by uh, the British government. And this is the 54-page report put out by the Committee on Digital Culture, Media, and Sport talking about doping in British athletics. 13 of those pages dealt with 
UK Cycling, and Team Sky. And there were a few different um, talking points to come out of this. There was the fact that um, they concluded that the Jiffy Bag, the, the lovely infamous Jiffy Bag, probably contained Trimcinolone. And this was the 2011 Dauphiné uh, Jiffy Bag that was delivered to Wigo. Um, the next big conclusion was that Brad Wiggins probably did use Trimcinolone to win the 2012 Tour de France and that this substance was used not necessarily for medical reasons, but was used directly to gain an advantage. Um, Sky Medical Records were a complete and utter disaster. In fact, they were much less organized than the contents of my desk right now. And guys, you can't see this, but my desk is an abomination. I'll second that. Okay, yeah. Dane will second that. Mine is too, I mean, so it's okay to say that. And finally, Sky Principal... Is that, is, that, is that where you lost my raise, Fred? Yeah, oh, sure, the raise hoodie, it's coming. Yeah, let me just, uh, let me find those papers. I'll... File them on to the proper authorities. Uh, the final conclusion, Dave Brailsford should be held responsible. So, Hoodie, this is an ongoing story. This comp- this report was compiled over many, many months and months and months of public hearings. And I think if we were to boil this down, this report is a rubber stamp from the British government on something that we probably all kind of feel, which is that, yeah, okay, they were abusing the TUE system to gain an advantage for the 2012 Tour de France. But what are the larger ramifications here right now, Hoodie? Well, the first thing is is the legacy of Bradley Wiggins and as well as the reputation and image of Team Sky. Um, the, con- the context of, of what this means for the British media and the British public, it's it's kind of they're having like their U.S. Ada Lance Armstrong moment now in, in the U.K. because Team Sky came in in the aftermath of all the Armstrong scandals the doping scandals, and just publicly said, zero tolerance, we are a clean team, we're going to have a British rider win the Tour de France clean. So they set the bar so, so high. Uh, it was inevitable that perhaps they could not breach or match their own standards that they set out when they started to this journey of Team Sky, and they emerged as the best team. I think they're, they're paying the price both within the peloton of being kind of uh, too arrogant for their britches, perhaps. And also in the larger question of the TUE abuse and uh, playing the system, working the system to, to find out those legal advantages that, uh, that, that are still out there in, in, in the water code. And I think that they're really having a major crisis within British cycling right now. It cannot be understated the, the importance of the story. Yeah, we should mention that nowhere in the report does it say that Team Sky, Bradley Wiggins, David Brailsford, anyone actually broke a WADA rule. Instead, the report is detailing all of the instances in which Sky walked up to the line, you know, didn't go over it, but like just tiptoed right up to it and did things that this report concluded were unethical. And, you know, ethics, we could, you know, read the definition of ethics in the dictionary. We could debate that for 10 podcasts at length. We're not going to do that because that would make a really boring listen. But, you know, the ethics, I, I agree with you, the ethics are set in part by these two th- these statements in 2009 and 2010 from Team Sky about zero tolerance, about us being the clean team. And that was the message that was sold to the British public. So now, you know, seven years later, eight years later, to find out that 
um, okay, no r- actual rules were broken, but the ethics were tarnished, were had dirt thrown on them. Um, you can you can understand why people are really upset about this. Yeah, I think uh, Andy mentioned it being sort of their their sort of USADA moment, the, the Brits having their their uh, Armstrong USADA type moment, and I think it's really interesting the way if you if you read the way the British press covers this and the way the British public has responded to this. Um, it's to me, it, it was, I don't want to say it was surprising because I understand it, but it is a bit different from the way that I responded to it or think many American observers would respond to it just because I guess, I mean, call me a cynic, but I'm just not surprised that somebody's walking up to the line. I mean, I just kind of expect a professional sports team to walk up to the line. I mean, I watch the NFL, I watch baseball, so I'm just, I'm used to teams walking right up to the line and that's just what I expect of teams. And it was as if the British public is just shocked. They're just shocked that Team Sky would do this. And they're surprised that after all these statements, after all these years of, the, of Team Sky saying that they're this clean team, doing it the right way, that, oh, oh no, I mean, they're, they're walking up to the line. And, and I guess I'm just not that surprised. It's just kind of how we, as you mentioned just at the beginning of the, you know, kind of introing this section, it's something that we all kind of thought might be already the case. We all kind of, I don't want to say we knew it, but we all kind of expected it. I think the context here is really important though. So, you know, Team Sky and, you know, a lot of these teams, their entire mission statement was birthed by the chaos of the last decade, which was, yes, it was the Armstrong case, but it was also Rasmussen at the tour and Floyd Landis and, you know, all of this opaqueness in cycling where, you know, people are, and and the full gas go-go of the doping era of, you know, people using blood bags and EPO and having um, these elaborate systems for transferring drugs. And so coming out of that, so much of the public relations was around, no, we're going to do this the right way. I mean, I think of um, the Cannondale, Garmin, Jonathan Vodder slipstream experiment where the messaging wasn't just, we're going to do this the right way, but it was, we're going to do this the right way and we're going to sacrifice results. You know, winning is great, but doing things the right way is even better, even if it means we're not going to win. So when the 2009 messaging from Team Sky came out that it was like, we're going to do things the right way and we're going to win and dominate, I think that's when eyebrows were raised. And I'm with you, Dane. I think that's where, you know, we can look back on this and say, okay, Maybe we uh, we can surmise what the emphasis was really placed on in the winning versus doing it the right way conversation. And, and I do think there is something to say, however. It's not, you know, you say that it, there's no clear rule violation here. You, you are, however, not supposed to use a TUE just for performance-enhancing reasons. I mean, you're not supposed to, a TUE doesn't exist. It's not just like a blank check. And, and if Wiggins isn't sick and he gets a TUE just because he wants the TUE, that you know, that may actually be a rule violation. So I think there is, it's a little grayer uh, of a gray area than just kind of unethical but legal. It, it sort of does toe the line between legal, actually, if you're just getting it for performance-enhancing reasons. Yeah, that's a good point, Adam. I think they're using this asthma treatment. They used basically a nuclear bomb, and perhaps like a bazooka might have done the trick. But I think that within the context of looking at Sky from within the cycling community, as Dane was saying before earlier, that no one was really surprised. I think that uh, if you if you kind of get a, a sense from uh, talking to fans, talking to uh, just looking at social media, some of the comments, I think there was such a deep sense of cynicism that runs through anyone who's been watching the sport for more than five or ten years that no one could believe what Sky was doing under the banner of clean racing on Paniagua because like what you're saying, Fred, 
that some of these other teams, like I remember when uh, HTC came in after the telecom uh, uh, scandals back in the 1990s, 2000s, when Bob Stapleton took over, that was exactly what they said. We, we don't care about winning a race. We're going to race clean and the results will come and we'll, we'll pinch at the edges, maybe in a time trial, maybe in a sprint, maybe in a breakaway or leader's jersey. Team Sky came in, said, no, we're going to win the Tour de France and we're going to do it clean. And the way that they're racing, no one could believe it. Even if it appears that they haven't actually broken, you know, crossed that line into, you know, using the blood bags and using, as far as we know, using EPO and other drugs. But the problem was there that the perception from the outside was cynicism right from the beginning. You know, we have a great column on our website this week from Lionel Burney, who is a British journalist who's covered Sky and cycling for the better part of the last couple of decades. And he uh, wrote about the challenge of living up to that promise from the get-go of the Sky experiment. So Sky, you know, the announcement went out in 2009. Its first season is 2010. And Bernie talks about interviewing Brailsford in 2009 about this anti-doping message, this zero-tolerance policy, and notes that all of the support staff, or not all, but a good number of the support staff that Sky have hired are guys who have you know, histories of doping, have tested positive, have been associated with teams that have rampant doping on them, Stephen DeJong, um, uh, Yates, you know, some of these guys. And Brailsford, you know, is getting really frustrated in the interview and actually doesn't know some of the things that Bernie is bringing up in the interview. And so it was like from the get-go, that promise of a zero-tolerance policy seemed like it was impossible to live up to if indeed the focus was to win. Yeah, and, and I think with the with the team, and it's it's definitely a different uh, perspective, as you kind of point out, between cycling journalists, people who are in the in the business, and like the the general public, because they the general public, I think, and and the non cycling media sort of did seem to accept that. Whereas, as as Andy kind of pointed out, we we all just were cynics from the start, I guess. And yeah. So what does this mean for Wigo? So you know, Wigo, he is this. You know, he's been knighted. He's this huge champion. He's this big celebrity in Great Britain. Uh, in 2016, I interviewed his then business manager, who was talking about you know riding the wave of the 2016 Olympics and creating like multi generational wealth for Wiggins of having lifelong sponsors of really trying to take the celebrity out of this Olympics and, you know, elevate him to the level of a Beckham or someone of that level. And I don't think I, you know, I, I didn't see that happening after the original Fancy Bears hacks. But now with this report coming out, which is a rubber stamp, which means grandma knows, you know, grandma knows that, <laughs> that Wiggins was kind of a dirtbag. Like, what does this mean for his legacy going forward? I think his, I think his legacy takes a huge, huge blow because his Palmares are stellar. I mean, he won the world time trial title. I think he's won more gold medals than any British Olympian, the first Brit to win the Tour de France. And just his personality, he's such a quirky guy with a sense of uh, humor and his, his sense of style and music. He really was emerging as kind of that Beckham-style breakout star, huge profile within the UK. Uh, I think that's taken a huge, huge blow. Uh, just talking to people that live in the UK have told me that Wiggins has really retreated from the public eye the last 18 months anyway, as some of this uh, jiffy bag stories started to break. And that um, there was even some headlines the last couple of days in London. Some of those sponsors that you were talking about, Fred, have started to retreat from supporting Wiggins. So it's like, uh, you know, Wiggins is... You know, if you read that BBC interview, he feels like it's a witch hunt. 
he still feels like that he hasn't done anything wrong. He insists that he took the try steroids because he had asthma and it was the best way to treat it so that it wouldn't pop back up during the Tour de France when it mattered. Yeah, we should note that both Bradley Wiggins and Team Sky have made uh, Team Sky releasing uh, public statements and Wiggins going on the offensive, going on uh, BBC and doing lots and lots of interviews uh, to defend themselves and say that this report is um, is crap, basically. Now, there's a big difference here with this report because this report is a parliamentary has parliamentary privilege, which means it's not governed by libel law which means whatever is said here does have a certain amount of concrete truth to it because you can't sue the government for saying it because this has this parliamentary privilege so it's not like you can say ah daily mail i'm gonna i'm gonna see your butt in court Wiggins can't do that. Anyway, um, this is surely a story that's going to continue to unfold and unravel over the next couple weeks and months so we'll put that one uh, in the list of stories we'll check in on again. Uh, guys, before we get out of here this week, we have some excellent racing going on this week in France and in Italy with Paris-Nice and Tirreno Adriatico. Uh, guys, let's talk about Tirreno first because, you know, we've talked a lot about this race. Well, both Paris-Nice and Tirreno are seen as, you know, the shorter stage races that um, Tour de France favorites are using to gear up for the season and get ready for the Giro and get ready for the Tour and get ready for Milan San Remo. And there's this sense that Tirreno has been the harder race, attracting the stars to the field. And this year, it's not even close. So here are the riders that are at Tirreno Adriatico this year. Some of the riders, Tom Dumoulin, Peter Sagan, Roman Bardet, Michelangelo Lopez, uh, Vincenzo Nibali, Greg Van Avermaet, Rowan Dennis, Tish Benut, Adam Yates, Michelanda, Rigoberto Oran, Cavendish, Maichis, Gaviria, Gilbert, Kittel, Froome, Kwiatkowski, Jaron Thomas, Fabio Aru. I mean, that's like a stronger lineup than the Tour de France. So what is it about Tirreno Adriatico, the course, where it's sitting in the schedule that has made it this must-do race for so many heavy hitters? We saw a couple of years ago, I don't know if this was the definitive moment, but uh, Paranese changed the course uh, to make it a bit of a punchy sort of, let's mix it up and not a big mountain race and just see what happens. And uh, I knew that that turned a lot of the GC types away from Paranese, and it, it kind of hasn't seemed like they've come back. They've kind of stuck out at, uh, at Torino Adriatico since then. And I don't want to say that that was like the definitive thing, but that definitely seemed to play a part. And ever since then, we've seen these big stars tend to go to Torino Adriatico and that wasn't always the case. I mean, Paranese seemed to have the, the prestige a while back. Yeah, the, the, it's interesting. Uh, I agree with Dane. There has been, uh, you've seen Terreno take away the luster of Paranese over the last, uh, say, decade because back in the day, Paranese was one of the most prestigious races you could win. It was kind of considered below the Tour de France, the stage race. If you were a, a stage race racer, Paris-Nice was one you wanted to have on your Palmares, and it's lost a little bit of its luster. I think part of the reason, um, part of the reason I think some of the bigger stars go race Tirreno is weather. Uh, the weather is notoriously bad in Paris-Nice in early March, and having Tirreno a week later, well, not quite a week, but a few days later, in s- central southern Italy, even though the weather can be bad at Tirreno as well, uh, in general, the weather is better in Italy, and I think guys are just afraid of getting sick by racing hard at Paris-Nice, because, man, I covered Paris-Nice many years in a row, and every year was just so cold and so windy and so miserable, those first three or four stages. And once you got out 
of the Massif Central and you got down to the Cote d'Azur, it really was the race to the sun. Whereas Terreno, you're in the sun from day one. Yeah, I remember last year we saw clips from, I believe it was the third stage of Paris-Nice, where it was just the windiest, rainiest day. There are these echelons and everyone's in their rain cape frowning. I think that was the day that Roman Bardet got booted out for holding onto his team car because it was so miserable out. And it was just like, oh, yuck, what a terrible looking bike race. I think it's worth pointing out that that, that uh, Paris-Nice does not maybe have the Tour de France contenders. They don't have the, the Grand Tour contenders in that lineup. But there's plenty of guys who aren't at that sort of... Uh, specialization that are there that are definitely worth mentioning. And uh, just so we can maybe like, since we trashed on Pyrenees for two or three minutes, at least just to point out some of the guys, there are plenty of big name sprinters. I mean, Elie Viviani and Dylan Groenewegen having great seasons so far look like they're sort of coming up as this new class. Andre Greipel, also talented guy, also there. So plenty of good sprinters, even though maybe not so many uh, sprinter stages at the Pyrenees, which is sort of interesting. Also, a couple of these kind of classics type guys worth worth watching. And I think it's a good classics buildup because the weather is so nasty and because there are some bumpy kind of stages there. So not not like it's just a, a fifth-tier race. It's just maybe on its second or third tier, you know, behind Tirreno. Yeah, I mean, we have Welt Pohl, Sergio Heynau, Dan Martin, Julian Alaphilippe, Zacharin, <clears throat> Simon Yates, Esteban Chavez. TJ was there, not there anymore. He crashed out. Hope he gets well soon. Balka Molema, John Degenkolb, Fuglzang Damar. Um, we definitely have strong riders there. But, geez, when you think about that murderer's row that's at Tirreno. Um, so, Dane, when we look at Tirreno Adriatico, I mean, what are the keys to this race this year? Let's do a little uh, little preview. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, I, I think the key to any race at this point in the season, way before you get to the, the, the route, is just like the motivation of the riders. Because if you are looking to win the Tour de France, are you really going to be all that strong at, at Tirreno Adriatico? I mean, we've seen Nairo Quintana do really well here in the past. And then just sort of maybe fade a little bit later in the season. So I think before you get to anything else, it's the, the main question is, does Vincenzo Nibali really want to win Torino Adriatico if it means maybe sacrificing uh, some, some form in, in a month or two? Does Chris Froome, does uh, Miguel Angel Lopez, uh, do, do any of these guys? So that's the, the big question to start out with, I think, for uh, for this race and for Pyrenees for that matter as well. And then there there are some some really high mountains here, That's particularly on stage four. That's that's the big the big stage, I think, to watch out uh for the for the big gc guys to come out and play uh we saw a team time trial uh on uh on wednesday uh re- recording day um bmc won, won i think it's their third straight time trial they won at terreno adriatico so uh getting off to a good start for uh for that squad but there weren't any big differences so i think it's it's gonna we're gonna have to wait till stage four to really see what what's uh what's going on in this race and then the, the time trial at the end is pretty short so a guy like Tom Dumoulin or Chris Froome, who are obviously really strong on the time trials, I don't think they can just use that as their sole path to victory because it's only 10K and it's and it's just not going to be enough. So stage four, definitely the, the one to watch. How about Perry Nice, Hoodie? Is it just about uh, surviving the elements? The key to win there is to not get blown off the road by some massive gust of wind. Yeah, the, uh, the time trial today was quite decisive in Perry Nice. We saw... Uh, Sanchez kind of keep that lead against, uh, going, uh, against, uh, whoop pools in sky. The, uh, the stage, uh, going into stage seven, the penultimate stage of Perinace really is kind of the uphill finale. That, that last romp around, uh, Nice is usually, uh, you know, the race has come down to seconds the last couple of years. I think last year, Sergio Hanau won by, uh, two seconds over Contador. But always there in that stage at the Perinese is the question of, you know, do they have a big time trial or not? And this year they included the time trial back 
into the into the parkour, and I think it's going to be make or break the race now. I think really Pools, uh, I think has the advantage of Sanchez, even though Sanchez is a KG rider. You actually won this race before. Uh, it's going to be a fight between those guys. Also, have Sergio and Al, the, the winner from last year, is in the top ten right now, and it's like thirty some odd seconds back. So Sky having both of those guys is going to be pretty tough, I think, for for the other teams here coming into the last couple of days. That final stage of Pyrenees last year, the battle between Contador and Haynau, that was one of the best days of racing of the year. Yeah, that was fantastic. That right. was so much fun. Oh, Contador, we miss you. We need more riders like you. Uh, well, it's Torino Adriatico and Pyrenees going on this week. We'll have a rundown of how things finish up uh, at next week's podcast. So, guys, before we get out of here, we need to talk about what's off the front, what's off the back, hot and not, other stories that we may have missed from the world of cycling this week. I am going to go first because I'm greedy. Greedy, 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 greedy. And I want to talk about the American team at the Track World Championships that happened in Appledorn, uh, the Netherlands, this past weekend. We had some hot, hot, hot performances. The women's team pursuit won the world championship. Kelly Catlin was third in the individual pursuit. And uh, just the eighth wonder of the world, Chloe Digert-Owen, won that race. She set a new world record in qualifying. And then later that day, broke her world record to establish a new world record and lapped Anamiek van Vleuten. I haven't seen that in a pursuit in a, in a long time, like catching and lapping the other rider that early in the race. So uh, Jen Valenti, second place as well. So congrats to the Americans. You know, we're talking about... Tokyo Olympics coming up in two years, and it really does seem like Team USA's plan to focus energy and resources towards its track team, specifically its women's track team, is going to pay off. Um, what do I have off the back? I guess off the back, I would have to say Greg Van Avermaet at Strata Bianca. Come on, Greg. You're Belgian, man. It's like rainy and cold and miserable. That's supposed to be a day at the beach for you. Uh, he did not have a great race and blamed the cold for some reason. Okay, who wants to go next? I can take it uh, with the off the front here. Robert Power, 22-year-old Australian, rides for Mitchelton Scott. Was, uh, he's been a hot prospect for a couple of years. He was second at Tour de Lavenir. Uh, and again, just 22 years old. So very, very young. All-rounder, can climb, can, do, can kind of do it all. Uh, he was up there in the top 10 at uh, Strada Bianca this past weekend. And... Uh, I can certainly say I'll admit I had no expectation that he would be anywhere in in the uh, in the final. He was sixth in that race for a 22 year old to come out and to just suddenly be sixth at Strada Bianca um, after you know being a hot prospect for a couple of years. I think maybe is this is the year where he's taking a step forward. So that's big for him. That's a great cycling name too. Yeah, it's Bob strong. Power. That's right up there with Sarah Hammer and Bob Roll. Yeah, hopefully we'll get to see more of Bob Power, Bobby P. Bobby uh, P. In the next uh, couple of seasons, there's a lot of talent there. And just another really young star for Mitchelton Scott. They have they have quite a, a stable of them. Uh, off the back, let's go with uh, Mark Cavendish's upper body. Uh, the, the poor Manxman crashed uh, like ten seconds into Abu Dhabi uh, when uh, when an official car uh, hit the brakes. Uh, he had some had some head injuries there, and unfortunately, he went down again today at uh, Torino Adriatico. In the uh, in the time trial, and uh, once again scathed his his upper body a little bit. So hopefully Mark Cavendish can recover quickly uh, for his early season goals. It's been a tough couple weeks for him. Get well soon, Cav. Yeah, bummer. All right, hoodie. What's off the front? What's off the back? Off the front for me is Dylan Groenwegen. 
is emerged really as a, a major force in the early season sprints. The way he won Kern uh, Russell Kern in that stage in Paris Nice, just impressive. The guy has got the speed and the power to really emerge as as a huge star. I did a little online poll the other day because I was talking to a sport director and they and they told me that he doesn't doesn't have a nickname yet. So I did a little online poll on Twitter the other day. It's like, what's a good nickname for Dylan? I got a few good ones. Uh, Dylan gonna win again. That was pretty good from an Australian reader. Wop wop wop. Another one was uh, the bowling ball of Amsterdam. That's pretty good, the way he just kind of plows through the uh, peloton. My favorite is the bulldog of Amsterdam. Only maybe some of the old uh, hippies might know what that reference might be, too. But uh, <laughs> you guys have any uh, Dylan Gronwigan nicknames off the top of your head? I mean, he is very short, so like words like thumb and uh, fireplug come to mind. Maybe the, uh, the nuclear fireplug. Thumb in the dam with the Dutchman reference there. Thumb yeah. in the dam. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. We'll yeah. workshop it. We'll yeah. s- maybe we'll get some listener feedback on this one. In my, in my not, it's kind of, well, it kind of goes uh, both ways. I mean, hot not would be hot for the Tour of Britain. They decided to give uh, the same prize money to the women this year's uh, Tour of Britain. The great thing. And then the not is the whole podium girl debate. We've seen uh, a few of the races continue to kind of follow the the new trend of taking away the podium girls perhaps in the tour de france where we learned today that giro is keeping the podium girls going against these headwinds of political correctness they're staying with their tradition of the podium girls that's up to debate if that's a hot or a not uh the the podium girl debate on our facebook page has become like talking about american politics right now it is polarized it is divided and it is spicy Hot, hot, hot. You want hot takes? Go to our Facebook page and start reading about uh, Read the Podium Girls stories. Um, because, yeah, I'm with you, Hoodie. People people either love it or they hate it. There's no real in-between. There's no nuanced conversation anymore. There, there may be people who are in-between, but they're not going to comment. So even if they're out there, they're not the ones who are writing the Facebook comments. Yeah, maybe that just tells us what we uh, what we probably already assumed about social media commenters. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VeloNews.com. Subscribe to the VeloNews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of VeloNews on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash VeloNews. The VeloNews podcast is produced by Bell News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Bell News podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Hurdy Classic Soul Drums. <laughs>